Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Boycotting is grueling, thankless work, Taplines listener. It requires civic engagement, organizational discipline, and long-term strategy to go toe-to-toe with well-diversified, deep-pocketed corporations that are doing wrong. You can't just tweet them into submission, which is why so many calls for voting with your dollar these days are basically dead on arrival. But nothing's impossible. Case in point, in the mid-20th century, a coalition of labor unions, Chicano and black activists, and queer communities across the country all banded together to boycott a certain Colorado company over its workplace practices and its owner's politics. This was no flash in the pan. It would span two generations, three decades, and all 50 states. By some accounts, it's the longest boycott on record, and while it didn't quite bring its corporate foe to its knees, it did reshape the way businesses of a certain size would approach social and political issues in the future. The Rocky Mountain Firm in question? So glad you asked, Taplines listener. Talking, of course, about Coors Brewing Company. 1978 was a pivotal year in Golden, Colorado. Roughly two decades into a fierce consumer blockade over its beers because of long-standing allegations of worker mistreatment and discrimination, Coors stock was down and national heavyweights Miller and Anheuser-Busch were carving into its territory. Remember that episode we did with Maureen Ogle about Miller Lite and the start of the Light Beer Wars, listener? Go back and check it out if you haven't heard it yet. But my point is that Coors was in the thick of it and it needed a light beer to survive. 1978 was the year it planned to introduce to America the beer now known as the Silver Bullet. So when its pesky union decided to go on strike, Coors Scions Bill and Joe Coors, the latter a major conservative donor who underwrote Reagan's presidential campaigns and cut the check that launched the Heritage Foundation, thanks for that Joe, decided to go for local 366's throat. Little did they know though that busting Coors Union would only boost the Coors boycott. Here today to tell us the tale of this late 70s turning point is Dr. Allison Brantley, an assistant professor at Southern California's University of Laverne and the author of Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Cores and Remade American Consumer Activism. It's a book about, well, <laughs> that basically, and in writing it, she became an expert on what unions, activists, and allies all voting together with their dollars were able to do to one of the biggest beer companies in the country. And just as importantly, what they weren't. It's Dr. Allison Brantley, it's Coors Light, it's the union bus that boosts America's biggest beer boycott. Oh my goodness, that's a mouthful. (laughs) And it's all here on the Vine Pair Podcast Network, a little show we like to call Tap Lines. Do you feel that, listener? A little sense of history? Entering the Tapline studio. That's because today we're joined by a very special guest, someone with a master of master grasp of modern American beer history and a key moment in modern American beer history in particular. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Allison Brantley, who joins us as an associate professor of history at the University of Laverne and the author of Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Cores and Remade American Consumer Activism. Allie, welcome to Taplines. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Great to be back with you again. Thank you for bringing the veneer and legitimacy of, of scholarship to <laughs> our, our little podcasting endeavor here. We're glad to have you. <laughs> glad to be here. Allie, where are you joining us from today? Um, I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, so I teach at University of Laverne in Southern California. I've been here for six years, but I'm originally from Colorado. So that's sort of how I got into all this Coors history and, and beer history. You might say you were steeped in it from the very get-go. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I write about in my in the book is that my parents grew up in Iowa where Coors for a long time wasn't available. You know, that like Smokey and the Bandit myth of like having to smuggle Coors out of Colorado and I, you know, I always feel a little bit guilty admitting this, but my, my dad and my mom, like always have Coors Light in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I've had to kind of think, of, I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to sort of think about the history of something that's been around you for so long. 
It is very challenging, I find, and we'll get into why maybe there's a little bit of guilt associated with having Coors products or having your parents still buy Coors products after you've written an entire book about a company (laughs) strong arming its community and its labor force and yada, yada, yada. We'll get there. But it is interesting to consider the idea that these products obviously are meant for sale. They're, they're, you know, articles of commerce, right? Like they're there for profit, but they also become major cultural totems, major Mm -hmm. cultural signifiers for the people that consume them in a way that makes it difficult for people to grok, you know, complex feelings about the, the companies that produce them, right? Like you can, you can be very upset about the Yingling family's stance towards labor or Anheuser-Busch's stance towards small producers, but the products that they put out into the world often hold emotional places in people's hearts and people's fridges and and cores is no different in that regard. Yeah. Well, I I think that's one of the really interesting things about beer in the U.S., especially like over the past, I don't know, half century or I guess more than that. Um, Just the way it's become like, it's a signifier of some kind of authentic identity. Uh, like when I'm back in the Midwest, Bush Light sort of has that same like level of authenticity and a connection to some kind of idea of working class or normative American um, identity. And in Colorado, it's Coors, but elsewhere, it's it's different brands. So I think we have more of a connection to brands than simply caring about the way they taste. And you know, people are always like, oh, they all taste the same, especially with the light beers. But um, they have some symbolic value, which I always find interesting in how persistent that value can be. Yeah, persistent and powerful. I mean, mm-hmm. we're recording this episode in early April 2023. And as we here in the in the Taplines virtual studio hunker down and chat about, you know, some mid 20th century history, we're watching history unfold. Uh, and rage around us online and off um, as rising anti-trans rhetoric um, and violence towards breweries uh, holding drag events, things of that nature, have coalesced into a really bizarre flashpoint moment where anti-trans activists are are rallying against uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev for a pretty small social media promotional partnership with a trans influencer and actor. And you had written about that just the other day in Slate, which I thought was a fantastic piece. Everyone go check out Ali's story in Slate. Unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, uh, I suspect this will still be relevant because Mm -hmm. I suspect this type of culture war that boils up and boils over onto, uh, onto the real life discourse it will probably continue. That's my personal opinion, of course. And I'll, we'll see if I would love to be wrong about that. Um, yeah. But uh, but I suspect your piece will resonate, um, not just in this current moment, but um, unfortunately for many months and maybe years to come. But yeah, I think you're right. We, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. unfortunately, yeah. Again, would love to be wrong. Uh, but that's enough about the here and now. I want to take us back to uh, the semi-recent past, we're going to be scrolling the tap lines time machine back to the mid-1950s. And of course, we're here to talk about something that's very close to your sort of professional uh, heart or mind or uh, your body of work. You've spent a lot of time working on the thing that we're here to talk about today, and that is what's sort of colloquially known as the Coors Boycott. And Ali, why don't we just start for our listeners who may not have been alive in 1957, like I was not, uh, and you were not, um, or who just haven't heard of, of the Coors Boycott in, in you know conversation. Can you tell us what the Coors Boycott was and what it was about? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you're right. I mean, um, we call it the uh, like a single boycott, but really it's more of an intersecting set of boycotts that kind of overlap and evolve over time. Um, the boycott started in 1957. And really, I mean, it still kind of continues today, but I say it officially ends in the late 1990s. And there's, there's three reasons why people boycott Coors. First, and starting in 1957 at the flagship brewery in Golden, uh, brewery workers started calling for a boycott because of the company's anti-union practices. They were on strike. They were demanding better wages. Uh, the company, from the beginning, really, uh, of its history, has kind of pushed back against organized labor. And 1957 was a, a flashpoint in which these tensions became really palpable. 
um, in Golden and beyond. So this is sort of a labor boycott at first. And then in the 1960s in Colorado, uh, both African-American activists and Chicano or Mexican-American activists also start boycotting the company because of alleged discriminatory hiring practices. Some people had personal experience trying to get a job at the brewery if they were a person of color, like they would very rarely make it to a stage where they could get a, a job on the floor in maintenance mm. and production. Um, and then there was also some evidence that was released because in the seven, in the sixties, late sixties, the company has to start releasing statistics becomes clear that a lot of what they do is kind of curate their workforce through use of polygraph tests, personality tests, just general kind of, um, siloing of certain workers into certain areas. Just a little corporate phrenology, you know, like a little, mm-hmm. little bit of, you know, uh, sorting into different bins, so right. to speak. Yeah. They don't want anyone who's uh, radical. Um, they're sort of worried about threats on their company. They are asking people about their sex lives and their sexuality. And really it just, it's clear that the space of the brewery, the working space of the brewery is meant to be white and male. And so in particular, Chicano, sort of radical Mexican-American activists, take on the Coors boycott as a key part of their own like militant activism in Colorado and throughout the West, wherever Coors was sold. Uh, these are kind of the, the more like shop floor reasons that people have for boycotting Coors uh, based on the company's practices in its own production facilities. The third reason people boycott Coors, and this is kind of the biggest reason, at least in popular culture is because the family itself, the Coors family is deeply linked to right-wing conservative causes, um, both in Colorado and and particularly nationwide by the 1970s. So there's these three reasons that overlap and intersect um, and and actually make the Coors boycott last a really long time. It has a, a strong lasting power because pretty much anybody can find something in this boycott language to connect with. (laughs) <laughs> right. The Coors family makes beer that everyone loves, but basically as soon as you start learning about what the Coors family stands for, how they treat their workforce, how they treat the environment, which is something that comes yeah. up a couple times throughout this process, some like you can as you said, there's a foothold, there's something for everyone uh to be upset about once you start learning more about the their business practices during this period. Um, Ali, I want to talk, we're going to talk about the politics and we're going to talk about, of course, the labor movement and how it intersects with this boycott and, you know, coalesces in a pretty dramatic fashion about 20 years after the beginning of the boycott. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the, like, something that might be helpful as we think about this moment in time, which is, gosh, about 70 years ago, um, is what work looks like at the Coors facility during this period. I mean, were workers unionized early on? Were they uh, Mm -hmm. happy at work? Was Golden a good place to live? Like, can you give us a little bit of background on, on, you know, sort of what it's like before things get contentious? Yeah. So Coors, uh, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the company, it's founded in 1873 in Colorado by a Prussian immigrant. Um, it's kind of this bootstrap, like, you know, local brewery that expands over time, is able to weather prohibition, which makes it one of the few breweries that is sort of continuous throughout the early 20th century. Um, generally speaking, the Coors family is not particularly interested in unions. Uh, the first time that there's like a true union at the brewery is when prohibition is over. Um, 1933 is the first time there's a, a union of maintenance and production workers. So in these kind of facilities, it's it's really more of a factory than like, you know, a fun workplace like a microbrewery would be today. Not a fun like post-industrial yeah. tap room with right. some Jenga. Yeah, it's nothing like that. The majority of the workforce is uh, moving the beer, cleaning um, kegs and pallets and uh, making sure the brewing process can happen. Um, they're bot- uh, you know, working on bottling lines, like all of that is happening in the brewery itself. Um, generally, there was always this assumption in Colorado that the union at Coors of its maintenance and production workers was like a company union. They basically did what the company wanted. Um, and that's what Coors also wanted, because especially after Prohibition, they wanted control over everything that was happening in their brewery. They didn't want anybody like government or union officials getting involved in any way. Right. Um, by the 1950s, especially by 1957, when this first strike happens, um, 
Coors is expanding its distribution because Denver is expanding in this post-war environment. Um, so there's more of a demand for workers and they're sending um, cases of beer beyond the, the boundaries of Colorado. Uh, and so there's these are pretty good jobs in Golden, but they're not making as much money as competitor um, breweries. And so there's some um, concern that you know they could have better wages. The working schedules are really inconsistent for a lot of workers in the 1950s. Uh, they, they wouldn't really be able to predict whether they were on a night shift or a morning shift. That wouldn't be consistent from week to week. And and so for these people who are kind of at the bottom of the process, kind of holding up everything that's happening above them in terms of brewing beer, uh, start to demand better working conditions. They want a better contract. You know, they have families living in Golden or in areas of Denver, and they want more security. I mean, that's really what they're demanding is this post-war idea of, security and benefits when you work in an industrial place like Coors. Um, so when they go on strike, that's that's really what they're demanding um, in the first place. That's in 1957 that this strike happens. And what's the union in place at that point? I mean, there was an earlier one, I think, that was more of like kind of a company union. But at this point, they're affiliated with a group that would, I think, merge with the Teamsters, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the it's the UBW, the United Brewery Workers, and it's a longer name than that because they yeah brewery, flour, cereal, yeah. soft drinks, and it's local three sixty six. I think yeah, yeah, okay. And you know it's a pretty strong union coming out. I mean, coming into the strike at least locally. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I don't know actually. Maybe you know some people at the time would say no, um, but it's strong enough that even though they they are able to survive their strike in nineteen fifty seven. The company starts coming after it more and more every time they come up for contract renegotiations, which is about every three years. Sure. Um, and between the 1950s and the early 1970s, Coors's attorneys are pushing for more restrictions in terms of sort of autonomy on the job. They have this long list they keep adding to of reasons for discharge um, or discipline, which includes like, you know, finding stuff in your locker, um, showing up late to work. If, if there was any discipline issues, you could be subject to a polygraph test. Um, so increasingly, the the union itself is kind of under assault from the company in the 1960s. And in that process, it radicalizes in reaction to that. Um, in the early 1970s, when the United Brewery Workers merges with the Teamsters, this particular local doesn't want to do that because there's a lot of hard feelings with the Teamsters union for a lot of different reasons we can talk about. Um, <laughs> but Local 366 decides to become an independent union, which is really risky at the time. There's not that many unions that do this in the 70s, but it's sort of part of a broader like grassroots rank-and-file militancy. And they do that, and it indicates to me that like the union's pretty strong in the early 1970s if they're willing to make this step. To mm-hmm. stay an independent union, unaffiliated with the Teamsters, still facing off with Coors and all kinds of different um, battles from year to year. Mm -hmm. This would be, in hindsight, of course, a very significant decision and maybe a pivotal one to stay independent and not sort of move into the folds of a larger organization, be it the Mm AFL-CIO or the Teamsters, you know, hewing more closely to some of those larger national labor organizations that at the time were still quite muscular. I mean, we're talking in 2023, labor's having a nice little bit of a cultural resurgence. But if you zoom out and look at the graph, labor density in the United States has been in a uh, ski slope headed down uh, since right around the time that we're talking about, the the mid-70s, right? And so at the time, labor still had a fair amount of bargaining power, but going off on your own, establishing yourself as an independent chapter carries risks that we're going to get into in, in just a moment. Yeah. I just want to clarify, they are sort of affiliated with the AFL-CIO. They're what's called a directly affiliated union. So they get some like organizing support, but not in the way that like uh, an electrician's union or something like that would. Right. So they're still kind right. of out there on their own. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for the clarification. If you know anything about organized labor listener, you know that there are a lot of acronyms and there are a lot of interrelations mm-hmm. with uh, the various organizations. Ally, of course, is much more precise than your occasionally incorrect host here at Tapline. So Ali, thank you for mm-hmm. the clarification. Uh, but yeah, so before we talk about what happens in this strike that, you know, the local 366 undertakes in the the mid to late 70s, 
I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what's going on in the country at the time, both in terms of the competitors that you mentioned, which are paying more, you know, for the labor that Coors workers are doing, be that Anheuser-Busch or Miller or Schlitz. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also politically, I mean, we think about the conservative movement as a fact of American life two decades into the 21st century. But what we understand as that movement really starts as a project and kind of coalesces around the time that we're talking about. So I was hoping you could give us a little bit of historian's context on, you know, sort of what's in the air in the, mm-hmm. in the early to mid seventies in those regards. Yeah. Okay. Well, I try not to get too like esoteric. Oh, sorry. Was that uh, no, like no, a no. way too complicated no. question? No, no. <laughs> this is like, I'm like, yes. Uh, <laughs> so in the early seventies, um, Right. So the the local, the brewery workers at Coors are starting to become more militant. They're kind of increasingly preparing for some kind of like big standoff strike with Coors that comes in 77. Um, and this all makes sense in the context of what's happening nationally. I think one, uh, I think there's three things, two of them you mentioned. One is that this is a period in which the beer industry is consolidating in, behind these really big sort of mega producers Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Schlitz, Coors, those are kind of the big four. Stroh's at one point, looks like maybe it's going to make a, take a shot at it. Schaefer is kind of in the mix, but yeah, those are the big players and they're doing enormous volume. They're shipping beer by refrigerated rail. They're building breweries like mad all around the country, whereas Coors is emphatically insistent that they'll only brew in Golden because of Mm -hmm. the water. That, by the way, listener, they occasionally maybe, you know, accidentally uh, dump a few thousand (laughs) gallons of toxic uh, contaminants into, but whoopsie daisy. Um, But yeah, so right. So those are the, those are the competitors, uh, the main players in the landscape. Yeah. And by this period, the executives at the Coors Brewery, they're the third generation sons, you know, grandsons, um, Joe and Bill in particular, they really want Coors to be nationally competitive. I mean, if they, if they want to survive, they have to be nationally competitive. But as you mentioned, they only distribute within a certain sort of radius of the brewery because they're not pasteurizing their beer and it needs to stay cold. Um, so there's some limits on how you know far you can transport beer without it becoming dangerous to the, the consumer. Um, so they're really trying to keep their market confined. The Federal Trade Commission actually tells them, like, you can't do that. You actually have to, like, let your beer be distributed along the lines of the free market. So by the 70s, they're like, mid-70s, they're positioning themselves to start expanding distribution nationally. So this means more is at stake for them, um, but they also want to have continued control over what's happening in their facilities. So as the union becomes stronger, Coors sees more and more incentive to control that or, or put, you know, bring it back under their own control um, so that they can have a say or, or have complete management of the narrative as they go forward, as they're trying to distribute. So we're like in this mix where all these brewers are competing. Um, Anheuser-Busch is unionized. So, you know, the brewery workers at Coors are looking at these competitors and saying, well, we could make more money and we could have a union contract if we worked for one of these ones. Um, so in that context, there's more, more motivation for them to push back against the company. Um, you know, the other thing to consider is that at the, in the early 1970s, in spite of our, you know, if you look with hindsight, you see that unionization is declining from then. In the early 1970s, like people are going on strike like mad. Um, it's something that people complain about all the time, especially in a place like New York City, like constantly public service workers are going on strike. There's a lot of rank and file militancy coming out of the 60s. And so for brewery workers too, they're like looking around in the labor movement and they're seeing more examples of militant action against a really intransigent employer. So I think those are two things. And then, yeah, the other big context that you you mentioned is the growing power of the conservative movement in the United States, which had been gaining momentum from the 50s into the 60s, sort of as like reaction to the new left liberalism of the 60s, or just new leftism of the 60s. And um, Joe Coors himself, even though the family had always tried to like keep their politics kind of under wraps and keep themselves out of the public eye. He's really excited about this new free market, anti-communist conservatism. So in the seventies, he's stepping into more public roles um, and connecting the name of his product, which is increasingly competing with all these other products 
um, connecting them to a growing right-wing movement. And he's affiliated with the Heritage Foundation. He co-founds that. He tries and, and it sort of succeeds in starting a TV news network that's meant to be like a counter to liberal bias. It's the predecessor of Fox News. Like a proto-Fox News, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger, Roger Ailes works for right. TVN. Um, but it doesn't last be- because of various um, other problems with the, the mm. Coors family. Um, Coors is also like nominated for a public position on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And this brings a lot of attention to his conservatism and ultimately he's not confirmed. Um, so in this kind of brew... <laughs> And there's always like an opportunity for these dumb puns. Um, it's okay. Like, you're more. You're in a safe yeah. space. You're more than welcome to make dumb beer puns here at Tap Lines. Um, it's what we're all about. All right. Uh, <laughs> so you have like labor militancy. You have competition in the industry, which I think positions labor militancy to make more of an impact. And then conservatism all comes together. And really then Golden is kind of this epicenter of all of these different developments and battles um, by the late 70s. Fantastic. That's excellent backdrop to get into our main moment that we're going to be looking at at this on this episode of Taplines. We scrolled the time machine back to 1957 to begin the Coors boycott. We're now going to scroll it a little bit forward to this mid 70s uh, moment that we're sort of we've already been discussing a little bit. The boycott at this point has been going on in various capacities for two decades at this mm-hmm. point. It's already a very long-standing sort of like cultural slash political action that's being brought by a coalition. Um, one more thing before we get into what Local 366 does in 1977, what does the coalition look like by this point? Mm-hmm. Is labor still involved? Which activist groups are involved in the community? Tell us a little bit about who's bringing the pressure at this moment. Yeah. Uh, so regionally, especially in the West, you know, the coalition is still made up of labor activists. For for a long time in the 60s, another union at Coors has been kind of on strike against them, their pipe fitters union. So they're continuing to put labor pressure. The Chicano activists by the mid 70s is really when that movement flourishes and, and is moving nationwide. And the Coors boycott is remaining a sort of key tenet of that. Uh, but in the early 1970s, another union in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Teamsters Local 888, they're beer drivers. Um, they end up going on strike against Coors and some other uh, beers that they're distributing for. And like with any st- labor standoff with Coors, it becomes contentious. There's like scab beer drivers who are carrying ice picks with them and it's becoming pretty violent or the threat of violence is, is there. And in order to sustain that boycott, these Teamster organizers build really robust and unexpected coalitions with uh, queer activists in San Francisco. People always talk about Harvey Milk is involved in this. He's a neighbor to one of the Teamster organizers. That's how they know each other. Um, Black power activists are somewhat involved. Um, You have feminists also getting involved because of the Coors family's opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. So there's kind of this slew of um, leftist activists who are targeting Coors um, by 1977, maybe not in like an organized capacity anymore, uh, but the language and the narrative is, is still really there. And it makes it possible for strikers at Coors to look immediately to the boycott for support when they go on strike. And so they do go on strike. And that's where we're headed because mm-hmm. in 1975, just a little beer industry context, Miller introduces the original light beer by Miller, right? This is what we all come to know as Miller Light. It is the first successful entry to a category that's kind of been uh, a little bit of a joke for the prior 10 years in the beer industry. There was Gablingers. There was uh, there were another couple like diet style beers. Um, Rheingold rolled one out that were kind of a joke. But Miller, which was newly owned by Philip Morris at the time, um, has the insight that, man, if we can make this work and we can market it properly, there's a huge opportunity here. They were right. They they roll out Miller Lite in 1975. No one takes it seriously for a couple of years, and a couple of years later, it's like 12, 15 percent of all the you know all the beer uh, being sold in the country. This is enormous watershed shift in the beer industry, and so Coors at that time starts thinking about what was until very recently at the company Verboten, which is what if we made our own light 
beer. I mean, they already thought of Coors as light beer because it's this nice, crisp, you know, lager, but they started thinking about rolling out their own beer. And to your point, this becomes something that's almost existential for the company as it looks to go national, which increasingly, you know, seems like it's going to have to if it wants to survive. So, all of the pressure that you're describing, this boycott that's bearing down on them, that's coming at them from a bunch of different angles, from labor, from Chicano activists, Black Power activists, San Francisco, Denver, you know, all over the country, there's also market pressure on mm-hmm. cores. So this is a hot moment for for the bosses, for the workers, for kind of everyone in, in that brew, so to speak. Um, and in 1977, there's what I understand to be a fairly like parliamentary, like wage reopener type negotiate. There's like a, what should be kind of a box check of a negotiation. It's not a full blown Mm -hmm. contract renegotiation between local 366 and cores. Um, but that goes sideways pretty fast. Allie, what happens between the union and cores? Uh, after all this lead up, we know the context, we know the pressures, the temperatures rising. What happens in 1977? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, this is really the moment. It's like the moment where everything, all of the tensions between labor and management came to a head. And actually, I kind of date it a little bit. Like late 1976 is when mm-hmm. it's clear to the union that the company and its attorneys, and it has this one really notorious attorney named Irwin or Bud Lurton, um, it's clear that they want to get rid of the union. Um, they've kind of effectively done this in a couple other places. Um, Coors has a porcelain plant and they were able to basically oust the union there. And in 1976, the company basically says, okay, well, there's this kind of like defunct law on the books in Colorado called the Colorado Labor Peace Act um, that says for a union to be a representative, the workers actually need to vote a second time to say, yes, we want you as a representative. It's like the second certification election and the law is on the books, but like nobody cares about it in the 70s. And conservatives start kind of putting pressure on the courts in Colorado to look at the act again and, and get companies to recognize it. And Coors ends up being this test case where like Coors says, OK, we're going to hold one of these elections. And in the 70s, like nobody had done this. Um, the brewery workers actually, because they anticipate this, they're ready for it. And they win the election like by like. I don't know, somewhere in the 90th percentile, they get yes votes. And for the brewery workers, this is a big deal. It demonstrates to them that they can win in a battle against the company. Um, And they suspect that when this wage reopener comes up in January of 1977, the company is going to play hardball again, and they do. And it immediately sets off on a course towards a strike because it's clear that the company doesn't want to negotiate and the brewery workers themselves want to push more on like working condition, human rights type issues, more so than even wages. So they're going to take this opportunity. The opportunity ends up kind of descending into um, really tense relations. Um, and, and pretty much immediately, it's clear to everybody involved that it's going to turn into a strike. So that January 1977 wage reopener, they're looking at inflation. They say, hey, we want to raise to reflect you know, the, the decreasing power of the dollars that we're earning. This is very standard at this time. And my understanding is Coors just kind of is like, fuck you, man. Like, I dare you to strike. Yeah. Well, I mean, they also- Not that language, but right. well, well, maybe. Who knows? probably the under- <laughs> Yeah. Well, and the union also wants- some changes in their contract language, right? They want like some of these uh, discipline and discharge regulation or the, the reasons for discipline and discharge gone. A lot of people are really pushing back against the polygraph test in this moment. Oh yeah. The polygraph is one of these details that it's a jaw dropper. Anytime you tell mm-hmm. it's like, unfortunately, I, you know, I hate to say it's great cocktail fodder because this is a <laughs> beer podcast, but it is an unbelievable detail that unfortunately like is true. Like this is something that the company's doing. Tell us about the polygraph. You mentioned it earlier. What, yeah. what is the nature of this polygraph test? So, um, starting in the sixties, uh, especially after a Coors brother, the oldest Coors brother of this generation, Ad Coors, who's like Adolf the third, um, he was kidnapped and murdered and the company starts to institute stronger security, um, in terms of hiring people and they're, they're becoming kind of paranoid about people who are around the, the brewery. 
And so they add a polygraph test and a like, it's called a runner test, but it's like this like hundred question personality test. And so they're just trying to understand who's applying. <laughs> um, and if you get, I think it's like you do the runner test first. And then if you pass that, however they want it, you go for the polygraph. What the company always says is polygraph was administered by a third party. Um, so the polygraph existed. We know that. Um, workers signed affidavits and said that on the polygraph test, they were asked really invasive questions about their sex lives, um, about their politics, about all these kinds of things that were like totally irrelevant to a job. Um, I always have to say company denies that they knew this was happening. They deny it ever happened. It's sort of beside the point because it becomes like a really strong kind of narrative. Like people are really disgusted by this and they grasp onto it in terms of, you know, boycotting cores. Um, so the polygraph is in the mix. If you had a grievance with a manager, if you're working at Coors, they'd often subject you to the polygraph test again. So people really hate this because it's like the surveillance state. So they want it off the contract. Right. So there's a couple they're using the wage reopener as an opportunity to push back against some contract language. And I think Coors is actually willing to do some wage increases to basically buy off the union, they don't want to negotiate any of the sort of power relations at the brewery. Um, and, and so that's really, it becomes a stalemate almost immediately in terms of negotiation. And it's a stalemate in no small part because of some of those factors that you mentioned, which I mean, like at this point, Joe Kors is immersed in, you know, building the right wing project in the United States and developing that as a movement. So there's some face saving is maybe not quite the right word, but like, this is not going to happen Joe Coors is not going to be seen kowtowing to labor mm -hmm. at his own company. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's no, the two parties have set themselves up. I would say, I would argue probably the Coors family, maybe a little bit more than labor, but certainly like they're both dug in from the jump kind of. Yeah. Um, so what, so what happens? The stalemate happens. They're still under contract at that point, but they're headed towards a strike. Yeah, or the contract might have expired end of 76. Okay. I mean, regardless, like at the end of January 1977, the union um, has a strike vote and they like uni basically unanimously vote for a strike. And so they're kind of waiting to see like if it's going to happen. Um, for the next couple of months, the union is preparing for a strike. So they're, they have a strike committee, they have an education committee, and one organizer named Dave Sickler is organizing a boycott committee. So they're preparing like, they think it's probably going to come to a strike. So one of the things they're doing is laying the groundwork for a boycott that could immediately go into effect and be sustained by a network of activists across the region so that Coors could feel the pinch in all of its markets. This would be a boycott that sort of plays into or taps into the broader boycott that has been going on in one form or another for 20 years at this point. So there are new reasons that David Sickler is going to present or you know publicize to say, hey, we need your support because of these things that are going on that the union is bringing to light, right? Yeah. Yeah, yes. gotcha. So he, he really believes that, and he and I have talked about this, that like a, a union couldn't win a strike against Coors. He mm -hmm. felt that. He was really nervous about a strike. I think a year before this, there was some discussion of a strike and he was like, we, you know, we can't do it. And so he knows that a boycott is the only way to place pressure on the company and he understands that there are people who are already boycotting um, across across the region. And so he wants to to build upon that uh, to really hit cores where they feel it in their pocketbook. Why doesn't Sickler at that point believe that a strike could be won against cores? I mean, my understanding is it's not because he didn't believe in the labor movement. He was a pragmatist, right? Like he, mm -hmm. he was a master tactician and understood the stakes, right? Yeah. I mean, I think he... You know, he spent a lot of time in the negotiating room with Coors executives. He understood that they would go, or he believed they would go to any length to break their union. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't really care about the cost associated with it or if they were hit with labor violations. Um, ideologically, they did not want a union. And they could do what other companies were sort of doing at the time, was to drag out a strike, hire replacements. And then use the replacements to oust the union. The crucial difference between Anheuser-Busch or Miller at this point is they're not publicly traded company. They don't have shareholders. Mm -hmm. They also are completely family owned. So in the case of 
Miller, um, they have Philip Morris backing them, but Philip Morris has more money than God at this point. You know, this is prior to the undoing of big tobacco in the late yeah. 90s, early 2000s. So the Coors family has no shareholders to answer to. They control the board, right? So they can do basically what they want here. Mm-hmm. And then they also have uh, no real like parent company that can be targeted either. So they're kind of in this weird position where they're not beyond reproach, but they're also not a particularly easy target at this moment mm-hmm. for for the boycotters, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things Coors prides itself on is they like have no debt. Um, so really financially stable in the mid-1970s, although that's fading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe they go public. I was trying to remember the date. They go public sometime in the 70s. Um, or they share oh, some publics. They, they share some, some that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. So they have, and I think they have to do that because of some of their like problems with the FTC. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, yeah, it's a, the family owns it. Family mostly controls it. Um, they have a large facility that's pretty much debt free. Like, and they're pretty determined in terms of standing up to a strike. So, you know, I think it would be hopelessly optimistic for someone to think that a union could have won a strike against them in an easy way. Mm-hmm. What happens in the strike in 1977? It unfolds not well for yeah. for the union, right? <laughs> yeah. So it begins um, April 5th, 1977, which at the time we're recording this, it was a couple days ago. And I like realized I forgot the anniversary of this. You're right. right. Uh, yeah. Um, so they walk at 1400 or 1500 workers walk off the brewery um, after like a final round of just clearly negotiations are going nowhere. Union gets a strike authorization from um, the leader of the AFL-CIO because they have this tenuous relationship with them and they walk out. And Dave Sickler sort of immediately within like a week sends people to different places across the West to start to build boycott coalitions. So six strikers and boycotters go to LA. He sends people to Texas. He's got a couple people in San Francisco and then others kind of moving about the West to try to build up support. Um, But, you know, in spite of kind of the excitement of this moment, within a couple of weeks, a lot of workers had gone back um, then cross picket lines, unfortunately, a lot of them felt they had to. And, you know, some union members were upset about this, but some union members understood that some people had to go back to work. And Coors pretty much immediately starts hiring replacement workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the boycott helps give the strike strength. The strike continues for 21 months. Um, but one of the kind of interesting ways in which this unfolds is that the boycott is really stronger than the strike itself. Um you know, if you're on strike, you're really not making very much money. It's hard on your family. There's a lot of violent threats in Golden um, surrounding the strike, and, and it's a pretty tense place. Uh, but strikers carry on. They really want to get some kind of settlement from Coors, or at least to, to sort of continue to hurt the company, I think. By the end, it's kind of bleak. Um, but the boycott really takes off. And, and this is really a moment where I see the boycott becoming more um, expansive, uh, backed by really unique coalition and preparing itself to be a nationwide kind of political cultural movement. So the strike, the local 366 strike that kicks off in April 1977, it, as you said, kind of unravels pretty quickly. There's already people crossing the picket lines to go back to work within a few weeks. If I remember correctly, I think at least some of the workers' healthcare was directly through the company, not even like premiums being paid to Cigna or whatever, but like Coors just like had health, they just paid for the healthcare. So when they went on, and this is unfortunately like a precursor to a strike breaking tactic that we see all too often um, in the present day and age, which is cutting off company healthcare. I think that's something that, that Coors did at that time too. Right. So they've got a lot of leverage over the, over the workers from the jump, but to your point, I mean, the workers hang on for 21 months, which is an enormously long time for a strike, especially like, you know, if it's looking bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also maybe some good that comes out of this in the sense that it sounds like it energizes the boycott quite a bit during that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that because the strike is, is so bleak, I mean, even by like Labor Day of 1977, uh, there's this feeling that like, you know, this is not a thing that we're going to win. But because of this dire situation and the strikers really 
emphasize human rights abuses at the brewery when they make appeals. Mm. Um, there's a lot of sympathy and empathy for them. Um, there's a lot of people at organized labor who are worried that what Coors is doing, like dragging the strike out, hiring replacements, um, you know, really gunning to kill the union is setting a tone for other companies, which mm. would prove to be correct, right? So um, the labor movement, they see what's happening at the brewery. And I think the worse it gets, there's almost more motivation for people to boycott. Mm-hmm. And at least make sure people are paying attention here and yeah. they're exacting, you know, their pound of flesh or they're exacting, uh, you know, some consequences from the company, even if those workers are really never going to extract concessions in terms of economic and, you know, sort of workers' rights conditions at the brewery itself. Yeah. yeah. And the boycott itself, like, um, they're able to raise money. They can send money back to strikers um, for Thanksgiving. Boycott supporters in Los Angeles send two trucks of like turkeys and other food back. Um, and so it does provide financial support to the strike. So this, I don't think the strike would have lasted so long without the boycott as well. Without so they're the boycott. Kind of mutually reliant on each other. So it becomes kind of a cause celebre like in this mm-hmm. in this moment where they whether or not like they have victory on the picket lines, there's broader context. And at this point, is the national labor community involved, like the AFL-CIO, the Teamsters, where are they in supporting the strike and leading the boycott? I mean, who? Uh, I know that their role changes over the course of the long 30-year boycott. Where mm-hmm. are they at this moment in time? So at this point, the AFL-CIO, because it because the union is directly affiliated with the national office, they provide support. They finance the boycott. Um, so they pay for Dave Sickler to be a boycott coordinator. They really don't give him a lot of money, um, which is something that you know he, he sees as part of the failure of the, the whole campaign. Um, so AFL-CIO is behind it. They get all of their other unions behind it. So that's the great thing about the AFL-CIO in this moment is it's an umbrella so when Dave Sickler sends people to Los Angeles is the best example because that's where it was the most vibrant. Um, all these other unions are already like ready to support um, the Coors strikers and Coors boycotters. Teamsters at a local level, they're involved, but the national Teamsters are still um, in a fight with the national AFL-CIO. Uh, but here in LA, the Teamsters uh, finance a lot of boycott activity. Um, one story I really like is that the Teamsters paid for the kids of two strikers are married who came to LA, the, the, um, Evelyn Damaris and her husband, um, they pay for the kids to go to Disneyland. Um, Cute. so they're providing some of this like, like moral support to these strikers and boycotters who are like living away from home and trying to drum up support. I love that boycott for the people. Yeah. What, uh, what about the media in all of this? Are they getting support from the media? Are they taking out ads? I mean, how is this, getting community. I mean, this is obviously pre-internet. Mm-hmm. It's pre-cable news, really, cable network news or whatever. So we're talking about the networks and we're talking about newspapers by and large. Where's the media uh, in terms of the strike and the boycott in the late 70s? I think in Colorado, the media is mixed, right? Because there's two big newspapers, Rocky Mountain News, Denver Post. They kind of swing in you know opposite directions. There's definitely coverage of the boycott. Um but in general, I think that Coors is able to kind of control the media narrative. Um, and Coors suddenly, you know, after years and years of not really paying for advertising, starts advertising really heavily and paying for ads. Um, they have a series of ads that they put in newspapers across the country, but mostly in Colorado, called like, I've heard Coors' side and I'm satisfied. And one had like a Chicano worker who was like, I actually love working at Coors. Um, or one had a gay man who was like, actually, Coors is supportive of my rights, you know, all these things. So in terms of advertising, the company is really putting a lot into uh, media coverage. Um, but there's some instances where national media picks up on the boycott. The, the way that I really found out about the boycott at first, one of the, the key things that clued me into this being national was an article in Time magazine. Um, in 1978, that's like basically like, wow, this is remarkable. Like these people are coming together. So yeah, there's some local media coverage. Uh, it's in the 80s where big media gets kind of involved and weighs in on on what's going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. What happens to the workers on this 21-month strike? Many of them go back because they're forced back. They can't afford to pay for doctors. They can't afford food or whatever. You know, They feel like they need to go back. 
at some point the strike ends. What what happens in the aftermath of of that twenty one month strike by local three sixty six? So a lot of workers had gone back. A lot had been replaced. Um, you know, because it's a pretty good place to work. So when it became clear at the in the Golden, of, in Golden, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of towards the end of nineteen seventy eight, the company announced uh, that they were going to hold a decertification election which was becoming increasingly common in the late seventies, basically just a vote like to oust a union um, or to keep it that was already there. And, and their argument was like, you know, we have all these workers in here who cross the picket line every day. They don't want the union. Like they don't believe that local three, six, six represents them. Um, so the, the election was scheduled for the December 78 and local 366 has to suddenly like organize back in Golden. They've had all these people out in different cities. They come back, and one of the challenges is like one, a lot of the workers working in the brewery see boycotters as their enemy mm. um, now because Coors has been telling them, like, because it's a boycott, you're going to lose your job or that kind of threat. Um, there's a lot of bad feelings. It's really hard for them to get to most of the workers. And so the decertification election goes against the local and goes in Coors's favor. I think it's like a two to three margin of a vote. I can't remember the exact numbers mm-hmm. right now. Um, so yeah, the union is dead. And in December of 1978, it's really hard. I think it's really hard for workers who had been part of the union and who are still working there. Um, it was a loss of a community. A lot of them then didn't feel like they could talk about the union. And then people who had been really involved in the boycott stayed involved in the boycott. Boycott didn't end. So strike ended, the boycott continues. And I think is even more compelling to people because Coors had done the thing that everyone warned that they could do, which was to decertify, um, which was seen to be kind of this poison pill um, of labor management relations. And that's, I mean, colloquially, this is what's referred to as busting a union. I mean, Coors famously, infamously, is non-union to this day, of course, now they're part of Molson Coors, which mm-hmm. is a big conglomerate. And um, I've spoken to representatives of Molson Coors about this incident, and they're quick to point out that that's old ancient history. And and it's true that it's history, but it's mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's that ancient. And I would also argue that the ethos uh, and the ideology that informs this anti-labor stance, you know, does manifest in different ways with folks from the Coors family to this day. I mean, the the most prominent member of the Coors family is Pete Coors. Um, he runs for Senate in the early 2000, in the late mm-hmm. 2000s. Um, he, at the beginning of the pandemic, was thought to have written a op-ed in a, in a trade publication under a pseudonym. It's never been confirmed, but espousing uh, the dangers of the federal government intervening, right? So like there's still this sort of political undercurrent yeah. that uh, that expresses itself in various ways. But I'm more interested in what happens to this boycott after the strike, because it's this galvanizing moment. It's this maybe Pyrrhic victory or doomed, you know, cause celeb where from very early on, you know, it's not going to work, but it's it's catapulting or it's energizing this broader national moment. The strike ends, but as you know, the boycott carries on. What mm-hmm. what happens next? How does the boycott, you know, move forward after this deflating or maybe martyring moment? Yeah. So, I mean, the boycott organizers like Dave Sickler and some of his uh, people on the ground, like Evelyn Damaris or Joe Abeda, they basically say like we're going to keep at it. So they place ads in newspapers, especially late the labor press, saying. Boycott is continuing. Please keep boycotting. Um, we want. I think some of them want a union to get back into Coors, and as some noted at the time, they wanted to destroy the company. Like mm-hmm. I think the, the company always said, like, oh, they really just want to destroy us. And I think for some people, it's true. They wanted. They're mad. I mean, it spent years working for the company, and the company never really seemed to to care about their demands. Basically, um, so the boycott continues into 1979, into 1980. And 1980, I think, is really a moment where it's make or break for this boycott uh, because we're getting farther and farther away from the strike itself. But when Reagan is elected to the presidency and then becomes president in 81, it's clear that Joe Coors is really linked to this um, political you know, change. And there's more and more motivation for people to look at the politics of the boycott and the politics of Coors 
to keep up their pressure on the company. Um, so the, the boycott continues to expand all the way through the 80s. So Reagan's election, in a way, sort of perversely adds more fuel to the fire because now people are dug in not just against Coors as a company doing allegedly doing polygraph tests on their employees and you know curating their workforce uh, based on you know race and class, but also there's this broader national political moment that people are reacting to and Coors, I mean, explicitly is attached to it. He's writing mm-hmm. checks that that help Reagan get elected. He's f- donating the campaign funds. I think Joe Coors at, at one point had aspirations to be in the cabinet and they were like, absolutely not. Like you're very difficult to talk to and you have no charisma, <laughs> but thank you for the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, two of his, like, they call them the Colorado mafia, like two of his very close associates in Colorado politics ended up in the cabinet. James mm. Watt at Interior and Gorsuch, mother of current Supreme Court justice. Um, Amy, right? Amy Gorsuch. Yeah, yeah, Gorsuch. No, um, uh, Neil Gorsuch. No, no, I know. Wasn't Amy the mom? And Amy's his and excuse me. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. And they're like the most hated cabinet members. <laughs> uh, they don't last. They, I think they, they have to step down <laughs> in 83. So, yeah, like I think for a lot of people on the left or sort of in moderate labor politics in the late 80s, they're horrified when Reagan wins the presidency. Um, and at least with the boycott, someone says, you know, already there's this thing with a name attached to it that is associated with Reagan that you can boycott. So it's like an easy way to express political discontent in a moment where it feels like you have no power. And I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of political expression. And then as Coors tries to expand its distribution to the East Coast, this is an easy argument to build the boycott almost immediately when Coors arrives in places like Detroit or Boston or New York. Union towns. Yeah. Yeah. But also in the, in the South, to some extent in Atlanta um, as well, the boycott is sort of ready when the beer arrives. Which is a locus of civil rights organizing. Yeah. So labor organizing hotbeds and civil rights organizing hotbeds have a built-in fight that they pick up in the, in the mid-80s as Coors starts expanding into their territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show that, like, at this moment, there's a lot of good networks that have been built, um, co- coalitional networks between labor and other civil rights activists. So it's pretty easy to, like, put the boycott into effect uh, as the beer itself kind of expands its reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 87 is when we kind of talk about the unofficial end to mm-hmm. the boycott. There are some deals that happen, I think, that kind of make it so it seems like it's over. But at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that some people don't treat it as over at all. Why do we treat 87 as sort of, or we refer to 87 as the quote, end of the boycott? Yeah. So um, throughout the 80s, the company really revamped its consumer and public relations efforts. Uh, Before they were like, the boycott will end on its own. By the 80s, they're actively trying to appease different segments of the boycott. So mm-hmm. mid-80s, 84, they signed these high-profile agreements, first with a coalition of African-American organizations, kind of more moderate conservative organizations, where they promised to give money back into the community for the pledge that they would end the boycott. Same with the Hispanic community, and they're calling it Hispanic in this moment. Um, in 87... After years of trying to get the AFL-CIO to drop the boycott, the AFL-CIO agrees with Pete Coors um, to end their boycott. Basically, I think it, it, it's reflective of the weak position of organized labor that they want to like have control over the narrative of the end of the boycott. Uh, so they sign an agreement saying AFL-CIO will cease its boycott if the company agrees to a policy of neutrality whenever anybody tries to unionize their facilities, mm-hmm. which is a weak thing to, to it's like basically not really agreeing to anything, just saying they will remain neutral. Yeah. That's one step short of concessionary bargaining, yeah. right? Like where yeah. you're, yeah, it's saving. I mean, talk, we, we I mentioned the phrase saving face before this is, you could be viewed and I think accurately could be viewed correct me if I'm wrong as the AFL trying to save face here because as you mentioned by 87 the tides have really started to turn against labor yeah Yeah. Um, and they can kind of claim this as a victory the problem for most boycotters is the AFL-CIO was never the main authority of the boycott I think it's Lane Kirkland is the president then 
he's not like the guy who's been running the boycott on the ground. So grassroots people are not happy with it. Uh, queer activists, Chicano activists, people have been really committed. You know, say like, we can only end the boycott when Coors actually agrees to all of our demands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see 87 as an end. I see 87 as a moment where like institutional support for the boycott ends, but there's still a lot of motivation to continue boycotting after. And in all of this, Coors Light, we didn't even really talk about it because, frankly, I'm not that interested in its launch. <laughs> That's not really what Taplines is about here. But yeah. the silver bullet does come onto the scene, like mm-hmm. we mentioned, in 1978, becomes quite successful, helps Coors evade the sort of buzzsaw that's creeping up behind all of these regional breweries, you know, as one after the other falls, Coors is able to go national in a way that, you know, the Strohs and the Schaefers and the Rheingolds of the world just aren't able to manage. They go east, they're able to be, you know, bought uh, across the country um, for the first time after years of people coveting them in these markets that they Mm -hmm. were never in. And out of this comes something closer to what we recognize as the Coors brand today, right? It's a little bit more modern. It's a little bit less tied to sort of that Rocky Mountain uh, frontiersman heritage. The company starts positioning Coors Banquet as that brand, you know, like then there's differentiation there. But by 87, I mean, Coors Light is, you know, one of the top three and, and it helps Coors you know, pave its way to surviving and thriving into, um, into, you know, the next few decades before they tie up with Miller. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, and they're all, they're like, uh, spinoff brews that don't have the Coors name in them. Cause they're trying, like trying to separate themselves. Right. Uh, like Zima. Like- like Zima. <laughs> 1999. Uh, uh, Killian's Irish Red. I got that's right. But yeah, that's Zima. Right. I knew we wouldn't go through this conversation without talking about Zima. It's uh, actually a contractual obligation of mine. I, it's it's on my <laughs> rider. I have to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Allie Brantley, thank you so much for joining us here on Tap Lines. My last question to you, uh, and then I'll let you go because I'm mm-hmm. harassing you for more and more information about the course <laughs> boycott. We could do this for another three hours, but I won't subject you to that. Um, but my last question for you is we look at 1977, 1978, local 366's strike against the course company. It was... I think pretty definitively a loss for those workers, 21 months, not much to show for it. A lot of them crossed the picket line. It was maybe a win for the boycott that it helped to reinvigorate in the final analysis or in, in sort of your view, having the benefit of hindsight, how do you assess the worthiness of that effort? I mean, not, not trying to condemn the workers who undertook the action, of course, but in the in the cold light of history, so to speak, or under the cold glare of hindsight, how do you how do you assess the strike? Oh, that's a really hard question. I think with all of this, um, depends on the day you catch catch me. Like whether or not this whole story <laughs> is a story of success or a story of failure. Um, when I first started working on this, people would be like, "Why would you write about this?" Like they they lost in the end, and I think it's really valuable to see movements develop um, on their own terms. And, you know, I think to me, there's a lot of success to be read out of the strike because it's a moment of incredible solidarity in a state, for one, in Colorado that had been really notoriously anti-labor for a very long time. And there's a lot of labor solidarity there. The way in which this boycott built connections across different communities in different spaces is really um, remarkable. And it's not like the only place that this is done in this moment. But I think it highlights the persistence of like leftist activism in a period where it's supposed to be like dying out. Um, you know, the other thing, and I, I, you know, I have to give credit where credit's due, and that's the company became a better company because of this pressure. Uh, you know, they they won't say like the boycott made us better or the strike made us better, uh, but they did a lot in house to improve their um, hiring processes to provide more benefits to employees, although. That's one of those things like providing unilateral benefits is not the same as a contract. Um, But I think it makes it a better place to work because of this pressure. So, you know, I would say like 75% success. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the strikers I've talked to, the ones who stuck it through, they've always said they'd do it again. 
And I think that that matters that it had that kind of impact on them, even when it ended in such a devastating loss. That's powerful. Awesome. Allie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. You're welcome back on Tap Lines anytime. We really appreciate you taking us on a trip down memory lane. No, that's not quite the right word, but a lane nonetheless uh, to this pivotal moment in 1977 when Local 366 goes on strike in Golden, Colorado. Allie, take care. Well, thank you for having me. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.